Good morning. If you have a Bible, you can open it to Ephesians chapter 1. We are going to continue in this series studying through this letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesian church. And I welcome you to uh, open that Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under the seat in front of you somewhere. You can grab that. That's our gift to you. You can uh, write notes in it and just kind of mark it up and keep that as a gift. Now to set us up today, uh, let me tell you a true story here. Um, Tim Smith, when he was 11 years old, uh, made a life-changing discovery. Uh, Pretty fascinating true story. Stumbling through his mom's closet looking for Christmas gifts like many of us have probably done. And he stumbled uh, upon not a Christmas gift, but a birth certificate. And that birth certificate belonged to none other than him. And he read that birth certificate. And to his surprise, he came to understand in that moment that his father, his dad, was actually a major league baseball pitcher named Tug. Now, imagine how that felt in the moment. Imagine in the moment you're stumbling through the closet and you come and you pick this up and you realize what you didn't know about yourself. Not only that, now you know that you're related to somebody who's pretty influential, pretty powerful, somebody who everybody knows and like this incredible person that you're now related to and connected to intimately. Well, over time, uh, Tim was able to meet his dad and develop a relationship with him, a bond and be connected to him and be encouraged by him. Fast forward a little bit later, and he's in college, and he's pursuing a degree that he's not sure that he actually wants to pursue anymore, and he's just kind of feeling like he would rather do something else. He's always had a dream of doing music, and he always wanted to just like be done with school, but was scared to chase the dream to pursue music until his dad comes along, and his dad gives him encouraging words, and his dad now has the financial means to help him pursue that dream, and so that's exactly what he did. He pursued that dream. And many, many Grammy Awards later, Tim McGraw is now one of the greatest stars in country music history. True story. It's pretty incredible. And a lot of his success is due to the connection that he made to his father. This person who he didn't know he was connected to, and he was now connected to them in a very powerful way. Well, here's the thing. We have a father, too. And many of us, we've been living separate from him. Many of us have been pursuing things and running ourselves ragged, trying to produce things in our life with our own strength and abilities, our own connections. We've been trying to do things all on our own, and the whole time we have had this father. And then one day you go stumbling through the closet, if you will, and you come across the word of God, and you begin to read it, and you realize there is a birth certificate of sorts. And it tells you about a connection that you have to a heavenly father that you were unaware of before. And the connection that you have to that Heavenly Father changes everything in your life. It changes all of your life completely. You see, we're going to study a text today that's difficult. All cards on the table. Uh, I had a long week. Figuring out how best to communicate the truth that's going to come out in these verses. These four simple verses that we're going to study today communicate a really powerful truth that's really difficult to actually teach and communicate. And so I had a long week, and that week culminated at 7.59 a.m. this morning when uh, one minute before first service started, we were ready to go. And so as if you're somebody who likes to take notes, today's your day. If you're somebody who's like, I've been wanting to go to seminary, today's your day, all right? 
We're going to get into some technical stuff. It's going to be challenging. It's going to be encouraging too, but I would say if you're someone who really wants to jump into something that's pretty a deep issue in the scriptures, today is the day for you. Now, we try to do that every single week, but today it's just going to be a little bit thicker. But in the midst of all of the study, in the midst of all of the technical stuff, all of the understanding, big theological truths, I want you to understand this. I want you to hold on to this as we journey through this passage together is this, that our God is a loving heavenly father who has made a way for you to come home. Our God is a loving heavenly father who has made a way for you to come home to him. I want you to hold on to that truth. Now, to set us up to study this passage, I want to answer a couple of different things. I'm going to break today into two different sections. We're going to look at who God is briefly, one characteristic of God that will help us understand even better what it is that God does that we learn about that he does and has done in Ephesians chapter 1. So to set us up, let me tell you this. One of, one of the things that I think is most important in your journey with God, if you call yourself an apprentice of Jesus, you, you, are, you are a Christian, you follow the Lord, you're connected to him. One of the things in that journey that I think is really important for your understanding is for you to come to understand this truth about God, that he is sovereign. Now, let me explain that a little bit. By sovereign, I mean this, that Jesus has complete and total lordship over everything. He has lordship over everything. Everything is his. Let me break it down one step further, okay? By lordship, the lordship of Jesus, I want you, if you're thinking about it biblically, you don't think about it in terms of causation. Now you're like, man, we are going, aren't we? Yeah, we are. So just bear with me. Meaning this, in his lordship, we don't think about sovereignty biblically in terms that God causes every little thing to happen, we don't think about it in terms of causation. When you read the Bible, you come to understand sovereignty in terms of control. Meaning, though he doesn't cause every little thing to happen, he is in complete control of everything that does happen. Now, Psalm 115 verse 3 describes God this way. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. It's pretty, pretty plain and simple, isn't it? That God is in heaven above every other thing that has ever been created and because he is God and he is sovereign, he is all-knowing, he is all-present, he is all-powerful, because that is true about him, he does whatever pleases him. And so the question that comes to my mind as I think through this, it's not that God causes every little thing to happen, it's that he's in control of everything that does happen. The question is, in his sovereignty, in his lordship, what is it that God chooses to do? What has he chosen to do? I think the answer to that is this. It's God has chosen in his sovereignty, in his lordship, to make a world where people are given the choice to love and serve him or reject him. God in his sovereignty has chosen to create a world where people have a choice. They have a decision to make. Will they love and serve him or will they reject him? In other words, God has chosen to create a world where he is not the cause of every specific thing that happens, meaning not everything that happens is what God wants to happen. Let me give you an example. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says this. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. What is Peter telling us? Well, Peter's telling us this, that God desires that everybody would be saved. God desires, what God wants is that nobody would perish. And yet some people do. And yet some people do. So in his sovereignty... He willingly chose to create a world where things would happen that he did not want to happen. Why would God do that? Why create a world where things could happen that you don't want to happen? 
Well, there's a lot to explaining that more time than we have today, but let me summarize it to you with one concept. God created a world where people would have the choice to choose to love and serve him or to reject him, thereby risking the idea, right? Risking, creating them, risking that they would choose to reject him and thereby do things that he didn't want them to do. God, in his sovereignty, chose to do that because of love. And love requires choice. True love, at its core, requires the ability to choose not to love. There, there's only one way to know if love is true. It's the possibility to not choose it exists. Ben Witherington, a New Testament scholar, describes that concept this way. In its core character as an action, love must be freely given and freely received. It cannot be coerced and it cannot be predetermined or else it's not love at its core. Inherent in love is a measure of freedom. A person can be wooed. A person can be persuaded. A person can even be led to love. But a person cannot be coerced to love. Or it's not real love. So God, in his sovereignty, chooses to love and provide a freedom for people to choose. <clears throat> now I want you to keep that in mind. As Paul continues, and we're only breaking off a little section, verses 3 through 11, or one long sentence in the Greek, like really long sentence. And we're going to break off just a little piece of that to learn a little bit of something in God's sovereignty that he chooses to do in the world. Let's start in verse 3 of Ephesians chapter 1. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this God we just described as sovereign and in control. All praise and glory be to him. Because he has blessed us. In the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. If you're someone who likes to underline, try to count how many times in Ephesians Paul references in Christ or uh, some variation of that. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. So Paul says that before the creation of the world, God chose, God chose in his sovereignty, in his control for his people to be set aside. That's what holy means, to be set aside and different from the rest of the world. Meaning those who would come to know Jesus, those who are in Christ, would in their freedom make a choice to honor God and thereby not look like the rest of the world choosing to not honor God. This is a pretty stunning thing. Because he then says, and when that's the case, when you're in Christ, God pours out his spiritual blessings on you. We have everything we need in Christ is what he's saying. Particularly this truth. That when God looks at you, he does not see your sin. When you're in Christ, when God looks at your life, he doesn't see the mistakes that you've made, the poor choices you've made, the people that you've hurt, or the mess that you've made of your life. When God looks at you, when you're in Christ, he sees Jesus. Now this would have hit the Ephesian church like right upside their head. Like what? what? How? Like how is this true? How could this possibly be true? Because in Ephesus, we've talked a little bit about this. They had a fascination with the spiritual world. We haven't revealed this part of it. But if you studied the history of Ephesus, you learn that their fascination with the spiritual world in, in part was tied to this idea that angels oversaw certain tiers or certain parts of heaven. So if there was something going wrong in your life, if there was something in your life that wasn't good or you were experiencing pain or suffering, somehow you had angered one of the angels that were over a certain part of heaven. And now that angel was upset and mad at you. And we read that or we study that or you hear that and you think, that's so foolish. But we do the same thing. We just package it in our culture with this fancy word karma. 
right? What goes around comes around. If something's not going good, it must be because you didn't do something right. You must have made somebody upset. And so as a result, God's punishing you for this thing that you did. And now Paul introduces this idea. No, 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 no. In Christ, we have spiritual blessings, not curses. In Christ, when God looks at us, he sees his son. In Christ, when you're in Christ, he has set you aside to be holy and blameless. Not just to feel good about your life for a moment. Not just for you to look at God and say, well, I think he's happy with me, so I should feel good about it. He says, no, it's deeper than that. He actually wants you to know you have security to know that when God looks at you, he's pleased with you. Let me illustrate for you this way. For years in this country, um, laundry detergent companies, you're like, uh, all right, laundry detergent companies would market their product in a variety of ways, but a lot of them would come down to this message. If you'll use our product on your clothing, it's guaranteed to make your whites whiter and your brights brighter. It's like, okay, all right. Well, recently they did a study where they put cameras in the laundry rooms of homes around America for the purpose of studying the behavior of people when they would do their laundry. You're like, not in my house, right? Like, I wouldn't want them in my laundry room either, all right? But people did this. And so they would study, what do people do when they take their clothes out of the washer and put them into the dryer? Can you guess the first thing that a lot of people would do when they would take their clothes from the washer before putting them in the dryer? Anybody? Smell them. A lot of people would just smell. Does it smell clean? And then they put it in the dryer. Other people don't even bother smelling. Just, uh, 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 task done. Hit button, walk out. Okay? You know what nobody did in the research? Nobody pulled the clothes out of the washer, held it up to the light, and said, did it make my whites whiter and my brights brighter? Nobody inspected whether the clothing was actually clean. This led the researcher for the project, the leading researcher, to make this conclusion. Feeling clean was more important to people than being clean. Just feeling like it's clean but not knowing that it's clean was just fine. As long as it felt good, it didn't have to be known to actually be good. So I would say that many people, many followers of Jesus feel the same way about their hearts that they do about their t-shirts. Most of us just want to feel clean without having to be clean. We'd love to just feel holy and don't really need to know that we are holy, but that's not God's goal. What Paul says here is that your holiness, he wants you to know that you are holy that you are set aside when you are in him. When you are in Christ, you can have this accomplishment. But you might be thinking, well, how's that possible? This sin that I've struggled with, the things that I've done, the choices I've made, the people that I've hurt, I don't know how it's possible that you could look at my life, even though I say that I am a Christian, I believe I am a Christian, I believe that Jesus' sacrifice was good. How can I have that confidence? Well, Paul continues and he says, you can have that confidence because you can better understand what God's plan was from the beginning. Look at verse 5. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one that he loves. So, and you're like, all right, here we go. And I'm like, all right. Like, I, you, anybody else guess how excited I was when I opened it up? I was like, oh, yes, predestination. This is so exciting. Because there's so much conflict around this. There's so much conflict in our world around this idea of predestination in, in the church. You're like, I've not heard. In church circles, there's a lot of conflict around it. I think the conflict is caused by a lot of different things. It's a lack of understanding of what the Bible actually says. I think too many people rely too much on popular authors, and they don't read the Bible. And so they just do what this author says instead of doing what the scriptures teach. I also think that some people's teaching is different from other people's teaching. Just that it's, two people land in different places. Some people would teach that predestination 
is this predetermined individual choice, meaning on an individual level, God is predestined, he is predetermined who would choose heaven and who would choose hell, who would be saved and who would be condemned. And that God has chosen for you. You don't have a choice. You don't have the ability to choose. You don't have it within you. You don't get a choice. God has chosen for you who will choose him and who will not choose him. Now, I I have a lot of biblical issues with that stance. I, I don't believe the Bible teaches that. But what I've noticed from people who don't believe that the Bible teaches that is that they come to this conclusion of because it's too intimidating, let's avoid it altogether. And let's not even talk about predestination. Let's not even talk about that word. And I'm sitting here thinking, wait, predestination is a word that's in the Bible. Like the Bible uses the word. It's not a made up word to explain some. It actually has a biblical meaning. It actually means something. And when you dive in and you begin to understand what does the Bible actually say about predestination, you begin to understand that predestination and adoption are these two things that come beautifully together to tell us a truth about the heart of our Heavenly Father. And so to help us understand predestination, to define it biblically, I'm going to break it down into two questions for you. Here comes your seminary class. The first question is this, well, who, who, who's predestined? Who is it that participates in predestination? Well, the Bible, when you study scripture, every time it talks about predestination, every time it begins to explain this concept, it always presents it in a corporate status rather than an individual status. Here's what I mean by that. It's groups of people that are predestined, not individuals. Predestination applies to groups of people, not individual people. Let me give you a couple examples. In the Old Testament, God chose the Israelites as a nation, as an entire group of people to be set aside and holy. The words of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6 say this. You, okay, and the you is plural. So you could, you could pronounce it like in a plural way. You all, or for our sake, to have fun, we're going to say y'all, all right? We're going to pretend like we're in the South, all right? So when he says, you are a people holy to the Lord your God, what's he saying? He's not saying you, he's saying Y'all are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen y'all to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And so in the Old Testament, he's describing to us when God set people aside, when he predestined people for a specific purpose, when he predetermined the destination of these people, it was an entire group of people, not an individual. In the New Testament, it's very similar. The chosen status refers to the church. The church has been predestined for a destination. God has predetermined the destination of the church. Look at how Peter refers to this in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says this, you or y'all, all right, it's plural. Y'all are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. So Peter explains the same way, that God has set you aside. He has predetermined your final destination based on an entire group of people, not an individual. You know why that's hard? It's because we live in the United States of America, the most individualistic culture in the history of the planet Earth. Everything's about me, 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 I, I, I. It's always a singular pronoun, and yet the Bible uses far more plural pronouns than singular. He's talking about an entire group of people when he's explaining that predestination to be chosen, to be set aside, is applied to a group of people, not an individual. But the question then becomes, how then, as an individual, do I participate in what has been predetermined for the entire group of God's people? How is it that you get adopted into this family that has been predestined to a final destination? So that's our second question. How do you do it? Well, the Bible teaches that predestination is a conditional state. What I mean by that is, 
that desiring to be a part of this predestined group of people requires a response on your behalf. Now, please hear me. I want to be very, very clear. The response isn't what is saving you. The response to the invitation is not what gets you in God's good graces. That is unearned, unmerited. That is grace. Salvation, Old Testament, being a part of the people of Israel, and the New Testament, being a part of God's people, the church that have been predestined, is always by grace through faith. It is not what you do that earns your salvation. And at the same time, the invitation that's been extended to you requires a response from you in order to accept it. Doesn't mean you've earned it. Doesn't mean you deserve it. It is a gift, but you must reach out and receive that gift. Let me give you an example in the Old Testament. The Israelites, this group of people chosen by God, not individuals, but individuals had to make a response to be included in this predestined group of people. You remember the words of Joshua, and and he presents to the Israelites, this entire group of people, Joshua 24, verse 15, he says this, If it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, then choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the god of the Amorites, whose land that you now dwell in. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Very popular verse. But the very inclusion of the word if at the very beginning of this verse is fascinating. He says, if it's evil to you to serve the Lord, then make a choice. You have to choose. Who are you going to serve, he says. So it's a conditional state. If you're going to be included in the people of God, you have to choose him. And in Israel, that would have been including certain things to be included in the family of God. They would have, no matter their age, had to be circumcised. Glad that changed, right? And so in addition, a kosher diet. You had to participate in the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. You had to do these things in response to what was freely offered to you, even though you didn't deserve it, the grace of God. You just responded to it. Like, yeah, I want to accept that. I want to be included in this predestined group of people. That's what happens in the Old Testament. New Testament is this. The church is chosen by God, but each individual still has to choose whether or not they're going to be included in that group of people. Luke chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus says these words. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Once again, it's an if, meaning you have a choice to make. Jesus has presented you a way to come home. Jesus has said, sin has ruined your relationship with God, separated you from your father. And he wants to, he has a predestined plan, a predetermined destination for his people in heaven. And he's extended this invitation to you to be adopted into that plan. You can be adopted into that plan if you want to respond to this invitation. And the New Testament, similar to the Old Testament, has a condition It's a conditional state, meaning have you responded to the free gift that has been offered to you? The Bible says, do you believe in Jesus? It's like, well, I don't have to do anything. I don't have to do anything. God does it for me. Well, if you don't believe in Jesus, what good is following Jesus? You believe in Jesus. Have you repented of your sin, meaning recognize that it was your sin that separated you from him? Have you confessed Jesus as Lord? Have you been baptized into Christ? These are parts of the response. They aren't what save you. But they are the way in which you respond to the free gift being offered to you. And the Bible's very clear about what's included in that response. Faith, repentance, confession, baptism. And now you are included in this predestined group of people. Let me illustrate for you this way. That's a lot to take in. Let me, let me try to make it a little more practical. 
Think of it this way. You heard earlier in the service that our men's ministry is going on this 4M extreme character challenge. And every one of the guys going on that trip are salivating now because he's like, he's talking about it in the sermon. Yes. Right? They're going on this trip. It's an awesome trip. I really do recommend you get one of those last 10 spots. Okay? They go on multiple trips each year. Now, if you want to go on the trip, you have to respond to the invitation that was given to you at the beginning of the service. Right? You're not, no one's going to make you go on this trip. No one determines ahead of time that you're going to go on this trip. You go and you make a decision and you go and sign up for this trip. And if you sign up and show up to go on this trip, you might be able to say on March the 10th that it was predestined that New Hope was going to take a trip with men and be on this mountain on March the 10th. It was predestined that we would go and you would be right. It was predestined that the group would go on this trip, but it was not predestined that you would be on that trip with them. The destination has been predetermined. They're going to Kentucky. The trip has been planned. The invitation has been sent, right? You have to accept that invitation. You actually have to go sign up. You have to pay for your registration. You have to pack all of your gear. Make sure you double pack. Pack all of your gear. You show up, you get on the bus, you go on the trip. And when you show up on the trip and you are on the mountain, you have responded to this invitation that has been extended to you. Now what was predestined for the whole group is now predestined for you individually as well. Let me give you a different illustration. Think of it in terms of traveling by plane, like an airplane. All around our country, flights are planned months in advance. So way in advance, you can plan to get on this airplane that's going to go from one city to the next. I've got a very close friend of mine who's a pilot. Love hearing some of his stories. He's, he flies all over the country, right? And he, he flies these. And, it, and months in advance, he knows when he's going to be flying from like Orlando uh, to New York City, from New York City to Minneapolis. He knows these plans well in advance, right? It's been predestined that the aircraft will go from this location to that location. But it has not been predestined that you will be on that aircraft. You have a choice to make. An invitation may have been extended to you to get the ticket, but you have to make the choice to get the ticket. You have to show up to the airport before the plane takes off and actually get onto the plane before the plane takes off in order for you to participate in the predestined plan of that aircraft. You have to make a response. Right? And once you do make that response, once you do get onto that plane, now what was predestined for that aircraft, the predetermined destination of that aircraft is now also predestined for you because you're participating in where that aircraft is going. This is biblical predestination. That God, at the beginning of the world, he had this plan to send Jesus. It is predetermined, it is predestined that the final destination of all of those who are in him will be with him in heaven. But it has not been predestined that you would make that choice. You have the ability to choose for yourself, will you or will you not ex accept the invitation of this predestined plan that God has for the world. You have to make a choice to participate in it. And then Paul says, when you do that, you are participating in the predestined plan of adoption to God as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. So God knows in advance everything that's going to happen. I want to make a connection between what we said about what God, who God is and what he did. We said God is sovereign. He does what he wants when he wants. He knows everything. He is all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-present. He is above all and over all. Everything in creation submits to his lordship. But he doesn't cause everything to happen. In love, he gave people a choice to choose him. He's in control of it all. He knows everything. And he has what the Bible calls foreknowledge, which means he knows everything that's going to happen before it happens, even though he doesn't cause it to happen. Try to wrap your mind around that. 
But he does. He has this foreknowledge, which means he knows in advance what's going to happen. Romans 8.29 describes it this way. For those God foreknew, he also predestined. Like he knew you would choose to be on the plane or go on the trip. He knew that you would choose to be a part of God's family. So he predestined. And that predestined plan was when you choose to become a Christian, you are now being conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters, that many people would choose to follow him. Think of it this way. Let me describe foreknowledge to you this way. Foreknowledge and and predestination. Has it ever dawned on you that nothing has ever dawned on God? Think about that. Has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to him? He's never been caught off guard. Nothing has ever surprised him. Ever. One preacher said it this way. God doesn't drive an ambulance. He doesn't show up on the scene of an accident completely thrown off by what he's seen. I wasn't ready for this one. All right, let's come up with a plan, Trinity. He doesn't do that. God knows everything. Nothing surprises him. Nothing catches him off guard. Now, two things might come into your mind. One thing, as I was talking through this uh, with my wife, she said, you know, someone's mind might go to this. This idea that if God knew in advance everything that people would choose, even though he didn't cause it, why would God not stop evil from happening? Why didn't he prevent certain things from taking place based on the choices that he knew people were going to make? That comes back to sovereignty. It's not causation, it's control. He doesn't cause every... Why does he not cause every little thing to happen? Because he loves. Love requires a choice and comes with an inherent risk. And that risk is that people that you created and that you want more than anything else to choose you will also not choose you. And in order for love to be genuine, he has to take the risk. That risk is there that people would choose not to love him. And in doing so, do what he doesn't want them to do and perpetuate the problem of evil in the world. But I want to bring it home this way. I'm going to bring it home this way. Remember this. God has not only not ever been thrown off by all the evil in the world, but God has never been thrown off or caught off guard by the evil in your heart. Nothing you've ever done, nothing you've ever said, no one you've ever hurt, no mistake you've ever made, no pain you've ever caused in the world threw God off to the point where he didn't desire for you to make the choice to be adopted into his family. He moved heaven and earth to make a way for you to come home. And he desires more than anything else for you to come home and to be found in Christ, conformed to the image of his son, to be more and more like Jesus, to be more and more made holy, to have the confidence that when he looks at you, he doesn't see the mistakes you've made and the pain you've caused other people. He's not caught off guard by the sin and the darkness in your heart because if you are in Christ, he sees you being conformed to look more and more like his son. Every time he looks at you, he sees the beauty of his son. And he wants you to have that confidence. J.I. Packer described adoption this way. He said, to be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is even greater. To know that he made a path for adoption for you. And here's the thing I want you to know about adoption. I've never in my life heard of an accidental adoption. God chose you on purpose. God made a way for you on purpose. He has predestined his plan, and the invitation has been sent. You can buy the plane ticket. You can go on the trip Whatever analogy you want to know, but you need to make a response. And that response is, will I accept the free gift that's been offered to me? It is a conditional gift conditioned upon your response to it. You're not earning it. You don't deserve it. You've done nothing for God to owe you anything. But God has in his great grace and his love said, you can have this gift if you will respond properly to this. You just have to respond. You just have to reach out and grab the gift. And the question I have for you is this. Have you responded to that gift? Do you have the confidence that you've been adopted into the family of God? The confidence to know that when he looks at you, he sees Jesus and not your sin and not your shame and not your mistakes. 
Look, if you've never made that response, the Bible is very clear. I'll say it like I said it last week. It's very clear. What is it? How do I respond to that? How can I be a part of that predestined plan? How can I be adopted into that family? And God says this, you believe that Jesus is the Christ. You repent of your sin. You recognize it was your sin that separated you from him. It's nothing he did. It's all that you did. You confess Jesus Christ as Lord, meaning he is sovereign and in control. And he has made this path possible, not me. And you're baptized into Christ. You're buried in a watery grave and raised up to walk in the newness of life. In a, as Paul puts in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, you are now a new creation being conformed every day to the pattern of what God wants for your life to look more and more like Jesus. Look, if you've never made that decision, you've never responded to that free invitation, we're going to sing here in just a moment. I'm going to be standing right off to the side. I would love during the song to talk to you, but I'll stand down there after the service and you want to wait till everybody's out and you're just like, hey, I need to talk a little bit more. I would love nothing more than to talk to you about the most important decision you could ever make. And if you have made that decision, this is a perfect time to reflect on the goodness of God's grace in your life. Reflect on what it was like pushing through that closet, if you will, looking for those Christmas gifts, looking for some sort of meaning and purpose in your life and stumbling across this birth certificate of sorts where you began to read it and you realize I have a father who adopted me into his family. And that adoption, that adoption changed everything. And so we respond to that goodness by worshiping. Let's stand and sing.